This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Wednesday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand Up for Life, a program committed to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything and everything. We'll take a shot at it. All we need you to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. One more time, it's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, 630-5757. You can email questions at calvarysa.com. We just had a flurry of questions come over, so uh, we'd love your questions. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit one button, call now banner at the top of your screen, and everything else will be hands-free. Tonight, because it's Wednesday, I'm going to be teaching from Genesis chapter 42. I love Joseph. I love his story. And um, this is a story I think that has a lot of real practical value for, for all of us. So that's tonight. And then, of course, tomorrow is the best day of the week. It's Thursday, and Paula will be here live in studio for the eight-day edition of the program. If you have uh, any questions for her or need any encouragement, please don't hesitate to call tomorrow. Okay, let me get to some questions that have been sent in. The first one comes from our email inbox. This one is from Chip. He said, can you help me understand Romans 10? 5 through 10, I can't really grasp Paul's point. Uh, let me read it, Chip, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Paul says, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? And here's the key. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Now, a couple of things, Chip, about this. Remember, um, I call it, and this is not a theological term, but I call Romans 9, 10, and 11 sort of a, a, a parenthetical insert using Israel as an example 
of the case that Paul made in the first eight chapters, that all are under con- condemnation, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, uh, that God is faithful even when we're not. Uh, all of this, and Paul uses these three chapters in in the middle of the book of Romans to to um, say, oh, it's like he's calling a witness. You don't believe God is good. You don't believe God is faithful. You don't believe that, that all are condemned and under the penalty of sin. I call Israel to the stand. And so in Romans 10, what he's doing here is he's making contrast. Moses says um, the righteous that comes by the law, uh, and then he says the person who lives these, who does these things will live by them. What he's saying is what you reap, you sow. If you say you're going to keep the law, then you have to keep all of the law. Um, and then he contrasts the righteous as it comes by faith. And all he's doing there is saying that, that, that while, while the law condemned you, faith saves you because it brings Jesus to you in a personal relationship. Because when Jesus comes to you, all you have to do is believe and your faith will be rewarded. We know that without faith it's impossible to please God. So what he's saying in this passage of Scripture is simply the law condemns and faith saves. It's a consistent message in Paul's letters. It's a consistent message throughout our New Testament. But he's contrasting it with the Jew who says, no, I have the law, and I'm going to keep the law. And Moses simply says, well, okay, if you say you're going to keep the law, then you're going to live with the consequences. And since we know it is the law that condemns, well, that means there's no answer for our sin. And then Paul presents the only solution is faith. And I love what he says when he says the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. It's not like something we have to go to heaven and get or, or go down to the pit and get. We don't have to work up. And it's just, it's just God is always there. And so all we have to realize is that this living word is near us. And then the word of solution or reconciliation is in our mouth and in our heart. Now, something I want to say here, because this is a passage that's often misunderstood. Uh, he says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we just think, okay, well, I believe that Jesus is Lord. And, and um, you know, we, we think that's enough. That's a, a confession of faith. But it's not unless you understand what Paul is saying. Um, you, you do have to declare with your mouth. That's the public profession of faith. But you also have to believe in your heart. And the believing in the heart is sort of that, that f- for most of you, it's 18 inches. For me, it's only 14 inches from, from your brain to your heart. It's not just intellectual ascent here. This is simply saying you've got to confess Jesus is Lord. Now, that, that means, Lord, he's the boss. He's in charge. You can't just say, yeah, Jesus is the Lord. No, you're declaring with your mouth, he's your Lord. You're putting him in a position of being your Lord. But but even that's not enough if you don't believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thereby validating every claim that Jesus made. So that's the statement of faith that we have to make. But it can't be just a statement that comes from our lips. Our heart, as it believes, we're justified, just as if we'd never sinned. But it's with our mouth that we sort of 
seal the deal. We make that public profession of Jesus Christ. There's nobody online, so let me tell a quick story. It was uh, before my older son, Ronnie, was saved. Um, we were in Arizona, and we were, we were um, talking to some old friends, and, and they, they were believers. And Ronnie happened to be with us, so we just stopped by to say hi and renew acquaintances kind of thing. And we started talking, and so at one point the man looked at my son Ronnie and said, um, so Ronnie, are you a Christian? And I'll never forget what Ronnie said. He said, well, my parents would probably say no, but I think I am. And my friend said, this guy used to work for me before we were both saved. He said, well, it says if you, if you believe in heart in your heart and you say with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you're, you're saved. So is that what you believe in? And so he said, you're saved. And I remember getting so upset. Don't you dare tell him that he can be saved with just words coming out of his mouth. Because your life, your life has to codify what your mouth says. It's easy to say Jesus is Lord. But if our life proves that we're not putting him in a position of lordship in our lives, well, then what gives us the right to think that we're in heaven? And and he was, oh, no, it's just easy. Just believe it and say it. And, and uh, boy, did we have a conversation about that. It's it's That's sort of what the world teaches. You know, it's always oh, easy to be saved. There's no obligation. Grace is free, and you didn't deserve it. So, But we got to live it. we got to live it. We're not saved because we live it. We live it because we're saved. And that's really important. So, Chip, that's what Paul is doing. He is uh, making a very striking contrast between the statement of those who keep the law or have the law and those who have Jesus in relationship by faith. Good, good question. Thank you very much. Here is an anonymous question that was sent in. I am grieving over the loss of a loved one. I'm happy there with Jesus but I feel terrible about them being gone. Shouldn't I be able to get over it more quickly? Anonymous, please hear my heart here. Everybody grieves differently. Now, the fact that you're happy that they're with Jesus, that's a good thing. But the problem is we miss people so deeply. They they are a big part of our lives. And there's this emptiness. And that's what the, the, that's why we grieve. So, no, you shouldn't be able to get over it more quickly. Now, here's the thing that you have to be able to do. And this, uh, I'm often misunderstood when I say this, but you can't let grieve keep you from moving on with Jesus. That's not getting over it. Sometimes I think people think because we're so guilty, um, we feel so guilty. I think sometimes we think, well, well, if I get over it, if I keep serving Jesus now, then then it's going to be like they didn't really mean all that much to me. No the way we honor their memory, especially somebody who's with Jesus, is to make sure that we're serving him with all of our heart. But don't let the enemy lie to you. Don't let anybody else confuse you. Grief takes some time to get over. And if you aren't grieving, I mean, Jesus grieved. Jesus wept. How much more should we weep? So go ahead and grieve, but do not let your grief keep you from doing what God has called you to do. 
I say this all the time, usually in a different context, but it works here as well. You know, we don't we don't get days off serving the Lord. If we don't feel good, if we're grieving, if terrible things are going on in our life, we still have the obligation to serve our Lord. And so we do it, we do it with a hurting heart. But the beauty about serving through your grief is that at that point, uh, the Holy Spirit can wash over you and sort of refocus you. And honestly, it will give you a wonderful respite from from your grief. Now, the grief will come back, but, but we just don't get over it. You know, there's this tension between we want people to be with Jesus. And, and you know, I've done so many funerals over the years, and when you do a funeral with somebody that you know is with the Lord, it makes all the difference in the world. But but make no mistake, it really still hurts. And we need to deal with our grief. We need to have the freedom to grieve. And everybody grieves differently. You know, when we do funerals for Believers Anonymous, um, there's always worship. Um you know, we talk about our relationship with the deceased and what he or she meant to us. And I mean, it's 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 a good time. I mean, closure. Funerals are superstitious, but they're they're good for closure for the people left behind. But the reality is that because we miss them so much, again, we need the freedom to grieve that loss. So don't feel any pressure to get over it more quickly. The tension between, well, I'm happy there with Jesus, but I'm feeling miserable. I I mean, if we're honest, we admit it's pretty selfish. But that's okay. That's how we cope with grief. So I hope that answers your question. And um, just give yourself permission to grieve over it. Remember, just don't let your grief keep you from serving the Lord. We still have that same responsibility. Patton says, who is the most notable, study-worthy Old Testament saint, in your opinion, and what should we learn from them? This is impossible for me, Patton. Um, You know, we teach through the Bible verse by verse, and we've taught through almost all of the Old Testament. I've been through the New Testament several times, but um, um, they're they're all notable. Right now, for example, uh, I'm studying, after all of our time in Genesis, we got to Joseph's life. And and I, I made the statement to our church that I think Joseph is the most Christ-like person in Scripture. And, you know, when I make a statement like that, that's pretty notable. Uh, Joseph was a man who could forgive the worst kinds of wrongs that were done to him. That's pretty notable. And I think especially if you're having a hard time forgiving people who've hurt you, I would say um, Joseph is worthy of your study and uh, there's a lot that you can learn from him. Um, Joseph teaches us about consequences. So it's just all kinds of things. And I think it just depends maybe where you are at your life at that particular point. Uh, I've said many times, I think my um, the Old Testament saint I admire the most is Noah, even though he messed up at the end a little bit, just like we all do. But uh, Noah, 
120 years preaching and working, persevering. There's a lot in our New Testament about persevering. And Noah persevered through what would be impossible circumstances to us. I also love Noah for the fact that he um, he had to be terrified starting over. You know, after the floods, the water had receded. They'd been in the boat for a little over a year. And then it comes to rest. Can you imagine the, the courage it took to open that door and go out, not knowing what you would expect? I mean, seeing bodies, what's left of them, after a year, it's a worldwide flood. So Noah, I, I just I just admire him a great deal. Abraham. I know I'm I'm answering your question with, with you asked for one, I can't do one. I love the fact that Abraham, the father of our faith, when he heard God call his name, he was willing to drop everything and leave. Now he wasted time, but we understand this was a man who was just being introduced to God. But Abraham, in that encounter, his name was called Abram, Abram. He was changed instantly, so much so that he could convince his wife uh, Sarai, we know her as Sarah, he could convince her to leave with him. I just, it's an amazing thing. I, I always think of the conversation that would have occurred when Abraham goes home to his wife that night and, and he says is with this dumbfounded look on his face, I talked to God, I heard God. And her thought would have been, which one? Remember, they were idol worshipers. And he would have looked at her and said, no, 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 God, the God. He spoke to me. And Sarah would know that the gods that they made didn't speak. Imagine how difficult it would have been to convince her. But he was so passionate, he'd been so changed by that encounter that he convinced her. And that to me is is um, an amazing thing. So, so th- there's just so many. I like Gideon a lot. I like Gideon because he's so much like so many of us. But Patton, uh, I-, I could go on and on and on and I won't bore you or the audience with it, but... Um, I think probably as the Spirit leads, the most notable one, the most viable one for you is going to be the one you're reading about right now because God's living and active Word is going to meet you. 340-9585. We'd love to have your live calls on the program today. Uh, Anonymous says, We have a discussion in our homes about whether or not to allow our kids to explore other religions before forcing them to go to church with us. May I have your thoughts? Anonymous, you won't like my thoughts. I think that's a silly discussion. Um, your, your children don't make decisions. You're the parent. You're the, if, if you're the male who's writing this, you're the leader of the household spiritually, and you're the one who's supposed to blaze a trail for your kids. Your kids don't get a vote. You're calling a Christian program. And if you believe what the Bible teaches, then it would be cruel 
for you to let your children explore other religions which are a lie. They shouldn't have a choice to go to church. I mean, they, you don't give them a choice to go to school, whether it's school or home school. They, they've got to go to school. If they're sick, you make them go to the doctor. Well, their sickness is sin, and you need to make them go to church with you. As long as the kids are in your home, it doesn't matter how old they are. Every parent ought to say to their kids, again, no matter the age, in this home we're going to church. And then I'll take it one step further. In this home, we're going to gather together as a family and do devotions. We're going to, we're going to talk about this wonderful faith. But to buy into the lie that we need to give our children the freedom to choose uh, is just absolute nonsense. And you are harming your children and um, you need to expose them to the truth. You can't make them believers, but you can say this house serves the Lord and Him alone. If they say, well, I don't want to go to church, the answer should be tough. You don't pay rent, you eat my food, this is what you're going to do. So I, I think it sounds in your question, Anonymous, that the, the parents in this family need to be a little bit more committed to Jesus themselves. Bruce says, is it possible to hear God's voice audibly? I want to follow him, but I don't want to be wrong. How can I be sure? Um, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this, Bruce. We've got four minutes left in the program, uh, or this half of the program. And this is a really an important question. Let me just say, hearing God's voice audibly, the answer is no. You never will. You never can. If you did, uh, it, it would it would shake the fillings from your teeth. It would be the most terrifying thing that you could ever imagine. So no, you're not going to hear God's voice audibly. Now, I know there are a lot of people out there who represent as having heard God's voice, but they didn't. Now, some of them are honest. Paula will even tell stories from that time when she'll say, well, I heard this voice say, this is the one for life. She didn't hear that audibly. That was that was God speaking to her heart. We weren't even saved at the time. But it can be so profound as though it were an audible voice. That's really important. But but we, we've got to be biblical about this. We can't hear the Lord audibly at all. Um, with regard to following him and not wanting to do the wrong thing, if you're with him, if you follow him, then um, you can't do the wrong thing. If your heart is right, you can't be wrong. Now, you may make the wrong decision, but see, God will order your steps. God loves you. He has a plan for your life. He wants you to walk in that plan. So if you make the wrong turn, our God's not arbitrary. You know, he's not, oh, I wish they'd have turned right, but they turned left. And sometimes we treat him like that's who he is. The reality is, Bruce, that that um, God has redirected my steps so many times when I was sure I was right. And he does it because he loves me. Now, the last comment I want to make is, he said, how can I be sure? Well, that's what it means to walk by faith. You know, when I first got saved, I really believed this, and this is arrogant on my part, but I really believed that, you know, for three years or so, 
uh, I was going to struggle with, uh, well, God, what do you want me to do? But I really believe that after about three years, with with as much time as I spent with him, as much as I was reading the Word, I really thought that there would be a time when I'd have it all figured out and I would never have any doubt again. You know, God said to do it. I know it's him. I'm good. I'm never going to be. But but that just never happens. In fact, I think the more we know the Lord, the more he forces us to walk by faith based on what we know, based on his track record. And when we Christians, we want to be so absolutely sure, it's like then we're depending on us instead of depending on him. He who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. It doesn't say you have to complete it. All we have to do, Bruce, is to be with him. And if we're with him, then the one thing that we're sure of is that he's got us. And I love the fact, I love the pressure that's relieved. When I realize I don't have to be right, the only thing that has to be right is my heart with God. And then what God does is take us in his hands and takes us down that path he's already laid out for us. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. You see, it's his job to finish us in the middle of his perfect will. Bruce, good questions. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9580. I'd really love your calls and questions. Toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show, 340-9585. Raymond question is, when, when was Abraham justified by faith? When he left home or at a later time? Raymond, uh, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 12. And, and Abraham was justified because he believed God. Now see, Old Testament saints are justified or saved, is our New Testament word, the same way we are by faith. So when, when, when God told Abraham, uh, his wife was barren, uh, they were starting to get old, uh, Abraham was 75 years old, and God said, there's going to be a child from your own body, and the, 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 your descendants will number, uh, be in number like the grains of sand on the seashores. And Abraham believed him. Abraham had a lot of walking out his faith, but he believed him. And because he believed God, he was justified. All of the actions that we read about, for example, in Hebrews chapter 11, that would come later in time, um, sort of the pinnacle of all of that was his offering of Isaac uh, on the altar of sacrifice. Uh, All of that was acts of faith because he was saved, because he was justified. But, But God's promise about a child, um, he was really saying that 
that I believe in Jesus. Because apart from Abraham, there would be no Jesus. If Abraham didn't have a child, then we would all be lost. And so he was justified then before he did anything. All he had to do was believe. And that's exactly the same way that we are justified. Now, one thing that's important to remember, Raymond, that when we really believe, that belief changes who we are and changes the choices that we make in our life. Abraham was an idol worshiper. He no longer was. Why? Because he believed God. Abraham struggled for three days, according to Hebrews 11. Uh, and he reasoned that, that why, why would God ask me to sacrifice my son, my only son? And then after a three-day struggle, he realized, well, you made me promises, Lord, and I believe your promises. So if I kill him, you're going to have to raise him from the dead. So so the, the, the acts that are motivated by our faith are because we are justified. So he was justified very early when he believed God. All of the other things that he did, leaving home, um, as I said, offering Isaac, uh, and all the other things in between, all of those things were a result of the fact that he was saved. Saving faith, according to James, the Lord's half-brother, works. It's that simple. He says, you show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by what I do. In other words, James is saying, you want to see real faith? Then watch how I work for God. So we're not saved by works, but works result from the fact that we are saved. And it's been true from everybody since Abraham. Good question. Jeremy asks a question I could spend the whole day on. What is the biggest challenge in raising godly kids? And is there one thing that you consider more important than others? Um, Jeremy, let me start with the end. There is the the most important thing. Uh, You're a father. The most important thing you can do for your kids is to cherish their mother, to love their wife, to let them be raised in the security of knowing that mom and dad keep their promises to God. They keep their promises to each other. They love one another. There's genuine warmth and there's respect and partnership in the house. That will make your kids realize that your Jesus is worth following. So that's more important than anything else. You can take them to Bible studies. You can make them do Bible memorization. I grew up in a neighborhood with a Jewish kid named Jerry Brown. And Jerry was fun. He was a really great athlete, so we all wanted him to be out playing. And he would say on on a particular day, well, I can't come out and play today. I've got to study Hebrew or I've got to study the, the, the Torah. And while we didn't really grasp what all of that was, um, the, the truth is, studying it didn't really do anything for him at all. There was no real benefit. And so what, what, what moms and dads need to do is show their children proof that Jesus is worth following. And that's going to mean you loving your, your wife or your, her loving her husband, uh, the house being a, a, a place filled with joy and peace, the peace of God, um, your kids are going to know that your Jesus is real. That's so important. Now, the biggest challenge in raising godly kids is for most of us, and Jeremy, I'm excluding you because you took the initiative to ask the question, but the biggest 
problem I think most of us have is that we don't really want to invest in raising godly kids. We're not in the Bible ourselves. There are very few Christian families, relatively speaking, who are actually spending time in the Word with on a daily or near daily basis. Um, very few Christian families praying together. And, and to kids growing up, it just all seems like hypocrisy. We say one thing, but we live another thing. And, and that means that Jesus isn't attractive to them. And I think when Paul writes it, we're not to, uh, he uses two different words or, or different translations. One translation says, do not exasperate. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. The NIV, I think, says, do not embitter your children. I think, Jeremy, that we live um, such lukewarm lives for the Lord. And, and we don't really let our kids see the, the, the power of God to change us. And I think that embitters them against us, against God. And I think that is a huge, huge challenge. Parents need to be all in, and they need to understand that we're going to stand before Jesus and give account of our stewardship over our children. Same thing we're going to do with our with our wives, men, and, and ladies. The same thing you're going to do when you stand before the Lord and answer questions about your relationship with your husband. That's how important it is. Now, obviously, Jeremy, there are all kinds of other challenges now. We live in the 21st century, and... And our kids, especially those who are in public school, are being taught that uh, there is no right or wrong. There's no uh, objective truth. Um, they're being exposed to sin, um, um, unspeakable sin, um, and not allowed to question it at all. Um, and the challenge that we have as parents is to give them the word, the word, the word. And because we're not doing that, we're not meeting the challenges. I could go on and on, Jeremy, I won't, but, you know, we, we, we need to take ownership of our kids' social media activity. Um, we need to stop letting other people telling them what's right and wrong. If your kids are not in the word, if your family's not in the word... Uh, I promise you they're going to be invested in social media and social media and the world around us is going to develop uh, or, or cause them to develop uh, who, who they need to be. And, and it's just going to be, uh, it's, it's a mess. So you set the example. That's the most important thing you can do. And um, let, let the Holy Spirit take care of the rest of it. Thank you, Jeremy. 340-9585, John asks, in 2 Corinthians thirteen five, it says, to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. How do we do that? John, we do it with um, um, a time of committed prayer, and we do it with our Bibles open. You know, when you're reading the Bible, uh, it's living, it's active, it's sharper than a double-edged sword. Uh, when you're... Seriously, read the Bible. And, and when, when, when I open the Bible, the first thing I think is, okay, Lord, you know my heart. Speak to my heart. And um, if I'm reading the Bible, it's a mirror to my soul. Um, if I don't like what I see, well, then I, I realize repentance is necessary. And I can confess. And then I know then, 
because the Bible says, if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me and purify me from all unrighteousness. That means through this act of, of, of contrition, of repentance, I'm, I'm in the faith. It means I messed up, but I'm okay now. And and so you you have to examine, but but as you read the Word of God, and and we we read it so casually, if at all, the result is we sort of shut it out. Uh, I, I'm horrified to say this, John, but I can actually read the Bible, read every word, and be thinking about a hundred other things. When I sit down in the morning. My first thought is, okay, I want to get through this. Lord, speak to my heart. But then my mind just goes goofy. And I've got to say, okay, Lord, let me start all over. But if we really dig in, the Holy Spirit, I promise you, will do the work. And he's the one who is examining you. You just got to let him have the opportunity to do it. Let's go to our first phone call. We've got, it looks like, Eddie on line one from San Antonio. Eddie, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes, sir, Pastor Ron. Just got a quick question uh, about the wedding supper of the Lamb. Uh, when does that occur? I mean, I've heard that it happens while the, after we're raptured and the tribulation's going on and we're up in heaven. Uh, if you could just talk mm-hmm. about it, I'll hang up and listen to your answer. Okay, Eddie, thank you very, very much. Eddie, that's that's actually correct. The, the wedding supper of the Lamb begins with the rapture of the church. When the church is taken out of the way, then uh, we are going to um, a seven-year point. I always find that interesting. We, we know it lasts seven years, but when we're there, we'll be outside of time and space, so it will it will be over in an instant. But it happens uh, at the rapture of the church, uh, our bodies will be changed. Our clothing will be changed. By that I mean we'll have the fine white linen of the saints, which represents the righteousness freely given to us in Christ. And um, um, our, our wedding supper will begin. Now, uh, there's some great weddings and customs. There's a book by Alfred Edersheim. Uh, he's the one that I talk about all the time, um, The Life and Times of Messiah. But he's got, there's another book they wrote, Jewish Weddings and Customs, or Weddings and Customs. If you just Google Edersheim, that book will come up. And and he'll give you a lot of information about Jewish wedding. A Jewish wedding lasted a week. It lasted a week. It was a party. Well, a week in Jewish terminology is a, a group of seven years. So what what was a week here on earth will be seven years in heaven. And, and we know that on the earth during that time, will be the Great Tribulation. And because of the Great Tribulation, uh, we won't be, we won't know what's going on. That's not the thing. Until um, heaven goes dark, there'll be a time just before Jesus comes back and we're coming back with him, then heaven will go dark. Then we'll know that that Jesus is going to go and reestablish his kingdom. So, Eddie, that's when it happens. Um, I can't wait for that moment. Um could happen at any time. Thanks for the question. Let's go to line two, talk with Irene from San Antonio. Irene, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. Hi. I'm calling uh, to ask a question because uh, I remember one time uh, they were, you all were discussing 
speaking in tongues. And uh, mm-hmm. you mentioned that in the mornings uh, you, you speak in tongues with, I can't remember if you said God or Jesus. And that uh, when you're having coffee. So what I wanted to know is when you speak in tongues with Jesus or God, is it, do you know what you're saying or is it your Holy Spirit that's talking to God? Yeah, great question, Irene. I I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, typically, I do not have the gift of interpretation, um, and and I don't have a set time when I'm walking with Jesus. Typically, um, I, I like to pray outside. I'm I'm not a person that gets on my knees, and um, I'm too old and stiff for that. But when I'm out doing my exercise and walking with the Lord, uh, I will I will almost daily spend some of that time praying in tongues. Now, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're praying to God the Father or God the Son or even God the Holy Spirit. There's no um, jealousy. There's no conflict between the two or between the three. So when you're you're speaking to to the Lord in tongues, um, you know you're praying in the perfect will of God. And um, um, it, it's a Holy Spirit-inspired prayer. Um, often, um, I know that, that, that the purpose of that prayer is to strengthen my relationship with God. And as I strengthen my relationship with God, it's edifying. I'm being built up, and I know there are a few times, Irene, and I mean very, very few, when I feel like I'm uh, the purpose of my prayer in tongue is to intercede for somebody. Uh, there are times when I feel um, there's a, a real sense of spiritual warfare and the prayer becomes a little bit more intense. Um, and I don't, still don't know what I'm praying or, or who I'm praying about, but, but I just realize that, that I think at this point God has me interceding for somebody, and in some cases it gets really um, um, serious, you know, and, and so so I know that. But... Uh, remember, it's a private, vertical language between you and God. And um, it's just one of those things where we've got to remember that, that our faith is in God. He's the one putting the prayer in our heart. And when it comes out of our mouth, he somehow is edified. Irene, thank you. But it's not a, a, a certain time. Um, I, I often don't pray at home. I'll wait till I get outside. Paul and I are talking or or, or uh, we, we pray together after, but but um, there's there's no set time. I just I just sort of try to let the the spirit of God lead, and uh, I don't do it every day, but most days. It's a gift I think Irene that needs to be exercised. So don't ignore it. If God's given you the gift, use it, and you're going to find it's a wonderful gift. Thank you for the call. Let's go to Dylan holding on line one from San Antonio. Dylan, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Uh, a pleasure that, that you can have me on the air. Uh, it's the first time calling in a radio show, so it's a little new to me. But uh, I've been blessed last <laughs> Thank you. To, uh, to get off of work in time to catch your show, and so uh, I've just been enjoying that. And I figured I'd ask cool. a burning question uh, in regards to, to worship and, and worship music. Um, and the premise is based off a discussion I had with a brother. We listened to a uh, worship group. On their page, they discussed that you know, they believe that with worship, uh, it, it unlocks, um, you know, it opens the veil of heaven, it unlocks blessings and, and, and healing and stuff like that. My question is, is there any biblical founding to that? And, uh, no. Uh, 
could you yeah, in, could you direct me towards where maybe people have this misinterpretation with worship or 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 other scriptural references for worship for me to dig into? Okay, I can. Thank you, Dylan. Appreciate it very, very much. Um, um, usually you hear that from worship people, and, and a lot of them, and if you'll look at lyrics to some of the songs that they're singing or performing, um, you, you'll find that the lyrics often are unbiblical as well. They become very, very emotional. Um, and, and it's sort of like, well, we're opening the floodgates of heaven. Jesus opened the gates of heaven. Make no mistake. Jesus, Dylan, opened the, blood, the, the floodgates of heaven. He's the one that gave, gave us access. That's the reason we worship. That's the reason he is the focus of our worship. It, it has nothing. We have no power to open the gates of heaven for healing. Uh, all we can do is give thanks to the Lord, worship him with all of our heart, um, but we have to be careful, especially in this culture of, you know, hip, young preachers and and really rocking worship teams. Um, you know, there, there's an old song. I don't know who did it. My producer, I'm sure, can tell me. But um, there, there's a song um, that, that um, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. I think it's Matt Redman, but if 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 my memory serves... And and the lyrics of that song are so beautiful. Um, you know, uh, Lord, please forgive me for, for what I've made worship. I want to come back to the heart of worship. And Dylan, most worship leaders in these huge churches need to come back to that place where worship is simple. It doesn't have, I mean, it can be really good and it can be big. But but any any message, any idea at all that 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 we can open those floodgates of heaven is completely unbiblical and misses the whole point of worship. We worship because our hearts are grateful for all that God has done. We worship because we have access. Before we were saved, we had no access, and now we can we can approach God with confidence to receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need, or even more literally, at the exact time of need. But we don't do any of that. All of that is a result of God, um, what, what he's done by offering his son. And then Jesus, who said, I, I will not leave you as orphans. Uh, I'll send you another me. And the Holy Spirit comes uh, comes within us. And, and typically the worship that you're talking about is... Um, Emotional, goosebump-inducing. Um, it, 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 it's hard for me sometimes because it's so repetitive and the lyrics make no sense. Love like a hurricane. What is that? So the idea here is we need to focus on Jesus. That's the heart of worship. And Dylan, I don't know if you're a worship leader or involved in worship uh, at your church or not, but just make sure that your heart is a heart that wants to worship God. As for biblical uh, references, um, Jesus said that God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So it doesn't matter what knowledge we have if we're not living what we know. You can read David's Psalms. Um, you want to hear a real heart of worship? Read Psalm 51, his psalm of repentance. 
And we got to get away from the idea, Dylan, that that worship is designed to move people. You know, I, I get so frustrated with worship leaders. Now, let me let me let me say this. I, I've had two worship pastors in twenty six years. And the guy that I have now, he's been with me for a very, very long time. I wouldn't trade him for anybody in the world. His heart is so right with God. Now, it's it's great worship. The quality is outstanding. But if I have to choose between good quality worship and a worship pastor with a good heart, I'm going to choose the worship pastor with a heart that's right with God. And 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 I've been blessed to find both. But... Um, my worship pastor cries when the Spirit moves him. He doesn't talk. I don't let him talk. It's not He understands his job is to worship. And then we worship with him. He never, ever, not one time has ever gotten in the way of worship. And so often the worship leaders want to preach. They want to pray for five minutes. Uh, it's a time of worship. And, and the point isn't to be emotional. Isn't to induce goosebumps. They they look out the crowd and say, "Oh man, the spirit is really moving." Well, the spirit's moving every time we're worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth. Every time that we're worshiping Him with grateful hearts. So, Dylan, uh, most of that is is um, is just emotional nonsense. And worship doesn't need to be emotional. It often is, but it but it isn't. I, I said uh, he's been with me for a long time. Uh, Pastor Lane's been with me for fifteen years. Uh, this year. Uh, the song that I was referring to, the name of it is The Heart of Worship by Matt Redman. So I had the name right of the author or the, the, the singer of the song, but not the name of the song, The Heart of Worship. Um, Google the lyrics to that, and it's a great song. Lord, forgive me for what I've made worship. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It is a masterpiece. Thank you, Dylan, and God bless you, and uh, appreciate your first-time call. I got time for one more quick question. Kenneth, did God make Eve from the dust like Adam or from another element? Um, Kenneth, God made Eve out of the side of Adam. So that's how God made Eve. It wasn't from the dust, it wasn't another element. Um, the two, one became two, and ever since then, two become one. In partnership with the Lord, but uh, um, God made Eve, uh, having put Adam to sleep. Uh, God made Eve from His side. You know, I, I, a friend of mine once said, he said, "You know, a lot of these men who are looking for their feminine side, you don't have a feminine side. God took it when He made Eve out of the side of Adam." So, Kenneth, thank you for the question. Hey, appreciate you tuning in. Remember, Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow on the Date Day edition of the program. We'd love to have you call. If you have any questions or needs, she will be here. And she's looking really smart, so give her a chance. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing, at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.